Welcome to the Build the Future podcast. My name is Cameron Weesey, and I'm your host. I've always been fascinated by the ideas and the sentiment that drove American culture in the 1960s with the space race. A culture galvanized to dream about the possibilities of tomorrow. Whether it's food, transportation, cities, biology, or anything else, it was this cultural mindset rooted in optimism that the world tomorrow would be better than the world today. A mindset where people were compelled to build things, and I quote JFK, not because they were easy, but because they were hard. It's this desire to build and to dream that seems to have been lost, and something we're here to bring back. With Build the Future, we're here to promote the ideas and stories of those who see how the future can be better, and promote their plans to get us there. It's our mission to get you to dream about the possibilities of tomorrow, dream about the future that you want to live in and inspire you to go build. Today, we're talking with Dr. Michael Levin of the Levin Lab at Tufts University. The Levin Lab, they're doing research and development on cellular communication and exploring the overlap between biology, computer science, and cognitive science. In their research, they've demonstrated the ability to form new organs, regenerate limbs, reprogram tumors, and more without editing the human genome. It's extremely exciting stuff and is leading us to a future where not only can we regenerate limbs, but we have the ability to program cells and develop an anatomical compiler. This conversation was extremely fascinating and technical, but it was a ton of fun. So let's jump right in. Dr. Levin, thank you so much for for coming on the show. I'm absurdly excited to have you here to talk about the fantastic research you've been working on. That's very kind. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I want to start with the basics, and I know that that may not be the right right term because there's a lot here. Can you tell me about the the future you're working towards with your research? What's the grand vision for what you hope it becomes? Well, the grand vision of what I think we're working towards has to do with understanding meaning in biology. So understanding not just the mechanism, because there's a lot of work and, and of course, some biology, chemistry, genetics have made massive um, inroads into understanding the mechanisms, the molecular mechanisms that are required for some of the things that life does. But what is still really very poorly understood are the information processing aspect. So how living tissues and cells and organs and so on, how they make decisions and how they know what to do. So not just how do they accomplish what they need to do, but how do they know what to do? And I use these these words like knowledge and goals and various other words like this. Um, very, very specifically, I, I, I mean them. And I think that our, our future, all the promises of regenerative medicine, adaptive robotics, all of these kinds of things hang on our ability to understand how cognition, how uh, the ability to solve problems flexibly scales up in biology from the most humble um, living systems all the way up through very advanced ones. And I think the future is going to be amazing in terms of what we can accomplish in terms of public health and well-being and extending the health span and and robotic exploration and all of that if we can crack this really important problem. And I'll, I'll just give you a simple, um, a simple example. So in computer science, and I've got, I've got a great uh, visual of this, a picture that I show when I give talks about this, of what programming looked like in the 40s and 50s. And there's this, there's this uh, black and white picture of, of a woman programming a computer. And what she's doing is she's moving wires back and forth. So she's physically rewiring it to get the computer to do something new. And originally, we had to program at the level of hardware. But one of the most amazing things about the journey that computer science took is that they realized that if your hardware was good enough, and I'm going to claim that biological hardware is absolutely good enough, then 
you don't need to rewire it to get it to do something different. You can operate at the level of software. You can give it inputs or stimuli, let's say with a keyboard or anything else, and get and, and take advantage of the built-in software without having to rewire it. So when you on your laptop want to switch from Microsoft Word to Photoshop, you don't get out your soldering and start rewiring, right? Because the hardware makes it easy for you to, to do what you need to do at the software level. And so making that transition, moving from hardware to understanding reprogrammability and focusing on information and algorithms and computation led to this remarkable information technology revolution that we have today and all of the things that have come from it. Biology, on the other hand, is still largely at the hardware stage. So all of the most exciting advances today people think about are molecular types of things. So DNA editing and single molecule approaches and, and protein pathways. We are still in biology and medicine, we are still largely focused on the hardware. And I think an extremely exciting future will be unlocked for us. All of the things that uh, we see in science fiction in terms of regenerating um, healthy body parts, um, avoiding all of the sort of economically unviable health spirals where, where these, these costs at the end of life are, are just enormous, being able to fix birth defects, normalize tumors, all, all of these kinds of things will be possible once we understand the software of life. Super exciting future. There's a lot, a lot to unpack there. The, the work you're doing right now around regeneration, which seems to be the the starting point that that is allowing you, you and your team to understand some of these other mechanisms that are at play, correct? Yeah, I mean the thing. So, so regeneration, and when I say regeneration, let's let's just make clear what I mean. So, first of all, there are some animals like salamanders that will regrow a limb if you if it's amputated. They regrow their eyes, their jaws, their hearts, um, uh, their spinal cords, their ovaries, and so on. So, so one type of regeneration that we're familiar with is, is the things like this, like salamanders. Another type, even mammals can do. So for example, if you think about where monozygotic twins come from, right? So an early mammalian embryo gets split in half and each half knows exactly what's missing. It uh, fills in the missing portion and you get two perfectly normal individuals. You don't get two half embryos, you get two full ones. So, so that type of ability more broadly than regeneration, what we're really talking about is the ability to reach a correct anatomical outcome, meaning having all these complex organs at the right shape in the right place, despite various perturbations, despite things that might go wrong, you know, uh, all, all kinds of uh, stresses and things like this. It's a system that's able to reach that same outcome from, from different starting configurations. So whether the limb is normal or whether it got amputated, if you're a salamander up at the shoulder or down at the finger, nevertheless, you still get a correct limb. So already you get this feeling for a system that is intelligent in the sense that intelligent systems, in the, in the sense that we mean by for robotics and so on, are systems that can achieve their objective in novel environments, and they can take what they know to adapt to new challenging situations. So, so for the, from that definition, already you see that there's a lot of intelligence in here. And the important thing about regeneration, you know, of course, it's very exciting that these things grow back and everybody wants to understand how it works. But the thing that doesn't get a lot of play is the, what I think is actually the most important portion, which is how does it know when to stop? So when you when the salamander gets injured or, or any of these other creatures, lots of cellular activity takes place, cells proliferate, they move around, all this stuff happens, the genes go up and down in, in, in levels and so on. And then when a correct salamander arm is formed, everything stops. Now, how do these cells, especially individual cells whose radius are, is very small, so they can't really measure how many fingers you have or anything like that directly, 
how does this thing know when to stop? Because in order to stop when you have a correct salamander arm, it helps to have some representation of what a correct salamander arm looks like. So how's that possible? So that type of question is what drives most of the things in our lab. And it's, and it's the key to most problems in, in biomedicine, because if we understood how cells get together, specifically how cells form collectives, get a kind of collective intelligence, where, where cells get together to form these, these collectives with, an, with a pretty clear idea of what they should be building, if we understood that, then you could respecify the target that they're trying to build. And we, we call this the target morphology. And if you could respecify the target morphology without having to change the cells, so, so our, our, our conjecture that we've been working on is this idea that the software is separate, so you don't have to rewire the cells, you don't have to edit the cells in order to get them to uh, build something else, you, you edit the plan. And so if you could change the encoding of this plan, you could get them to build anything you want. And so if you think about that, it addresses almost all of the problems of biomedicine. So, so other than infectious disease, everything else, birth defects, cancer, aging, degeneration, trauma, all of these kinds of things could be addressed if we had the power to tell cells what to build. So, so that gets back to this, this um, anatomical compiler idea that you mentioned, where we would like to get to a future where you can sit down at the computer and draw at the level of anatomy what you want. So the way, the way we do now with, with, you know, with parts and, and, and devices and so on, like computer-aided drawing and computer-aided design, you would be able to sit down and you would be able to draw the type of the anatomical structure you want. And what the code would do is compile that down to a set of stimuli that would have to be given to cells that would cause them to build whatever you just drew. And that, that would be absolutely um, transformative to, to all kinds of applications in biology and computer science. Yeah, it's, so that's for the anatomical compiler. It seems like the, the starting point, though, is with these xenobots that you've been working on. Can you tell me a little bit about that research and kind of how that kind of plays out? Sure. So, so the starting point, actually, for the work was, was well before the xenobots, was trying to understand how cells and tissues encode these gold states, these target morphologies. You know, they have these basically long story short, you know, compressing like 20 years of, of research into one sentence. It, it turns out that the tissues basically store a bioelectrical pattern memory, very similar to how brains store memories, that allows them to work towards these specific anatomical outcomes. And so trying to crack that, and we've, and we've cracked a bit of it, is the first step. And then the second step is to say, okay, if that's true, and if cells are in an cell collectives are in an important sense like universal constructors, meaning they could build all kinds of things given the right instructions, then the key is can we rewrite these instructions to rebuild limbs and eyes and damage organs? But then we're getting into the whole Xenobot idea. Do we take it further and ask these cells to build something that's completely uh, different than anything that came before? So, so something that's totally distinct from the default anatomy that forms from that genome, can we get those cells with a standard uh, genetics to build something totally different? And so that's that's how the xenobots came about. We asked this question, if we take some cells from a frog embryo, they happen to be skin cells, and we liberate them from the body of the frog and we put them in a new environment, what will they do? Okay, And do they have the ability to get together and, and cooperate towards some kind of new goal? And it turns out that they do. They make uh, a tiny little novel organism. We call them xenobots, or xenophus labus is the Latin name for the frog that we use. And bot is from biobot. It's, you know, this idea of a synthetic living machine that, that has 
predictable um, structure and function based on what goes in, like it, like in any designed machine. So what what we were able to do is to say that, well, first of all, we noticed that these cells absolutely try to come together and build a workable body, and they build these xenobots that run around a dish of uh, of, of liquid medium and, and do various interesting things. And then we found out that we could put this together with. Uh, so we have we have collaborators at the University of Vermont. This is um, Joshua Bongard and his PhD student Sam Friedman. In their group, together we basically established a. They they, they made this uh, virtual uh, virtual world in which various designs of xenobots could be could be evolved and tested and and so on. And then the the output of that is fed to us uh, for our experiments. And these experiments will then take these. Xenobot cells and manipulate them in various ways. You might remove some or add some or do various things. And, and so and so you've got this amazing scenario where for the first, to my knowledge, for the first time in the world, you have these creatures whose evolutionary past was not had on Earth. They, they don't have an evolution. The, the bots themselves, the cells do. They were part of the frog and they were sort of evolutionarily selected to sit quietly on the outside of the frog and keep out the pathogens. But but the new body that they form was not evolved on Earth. It was evolved, if, if anywhere, it was evolved in the virtual world of the computer in at the University of Vermont. And yet, despite the fact that they're in this completely novel configuration, they have adaptive structure, function, behavior, they do interesting things. So this is telling us hugely important things, I think, about the intersection of biology and computer science, about the role of evolution and design and how they can cooperate together about where bodies come from in the first place and where how much novelty and plasticity cell collectives can muster. And of course, it's helping us to understand the morphogenetic code. Because if we understand how to get these cells to, and this is only, by the way, the very first baby steps here, if we're able to understand how to tell these cells to build specific things, that knowledge will go directly into regenerative medicine, where we will be building organs for people. Tell me about some of the some more of the implications of of being able to do this. Oh boy, there there are a lot of implications. Well, let's let's divide them in half. There are there are practical implications, and then there are sort of deep conceptual implications. The easy ones, the practical implications. Uh, what we are going to be able to do is roughly two things: we can make useful synthetic living machines, and so we're talking about biocompatible little biological robots that that do various useful things. So maybe they go out in the environment and they clean up toxins out of waterways. Maybe they do sensing. Maybe they do useful things in the body, delivering pro-regenerative molecules and um, chasing down cancer cells and things like that. So, so those are those are kind of some useful synthetic living machines. And then the other practical implications is for regenerative medicine, because if we understand how to tell cells what to do, we could solve a lot of these problems. This is actually really critical because. We, we're going to, if we don't do this, we're going to have a real, uh, a real issue uh, here with regenerative medicine in the sense that, you know, the workforce techniques of this field, which are genomic editing and stem cell biology, both of those things are very firmly rooted in the hardware approach. And when we are able to cleanly edit DNA, which we soon will, then the answer will become, yeah, but what part of the DNA do you want to edit to give back somebody their arm or an eye, right? It's completely unclear. The same thing with stem cells. If you can, once the problems of stem cell biology are, are solved and you can make all the different cell types that go into an arm, how do you actually uh, produce that arm or a foot and what's the difference between them? 
and uh, you, you know we're not going to be micro positioning cells into to, to make a whole eye or a whole uh, a whole hand. So all of these things, just the complexity of it, precludes any kind of micromanagement. You know, trying to do it from the bottom up with with at the hardware level is not going to happen in our lifetime, if, if ever. So we need to understand the top-down control uh, structure of, of biology and the intelligence that these cellular swarms have to be able to convince them to do things they already know how to do, like during embryonic development to build all these things. So this will be a new approach. So the implication will be that there's a new approach to regenerative medicine where you don't focus on micromanaging all of the parts and trying to get all the cells and all the pathways in the right place, but you actually provide informational inputs. And this is one of the things we've, we've discovered in our lab is how to do this, provide simple informational inputs that trigger very complex downstream anatomical outcomes. And then, and then the third sort of implicate, practical implication will be for swarm robotics and machine learning. Because once we understand how to scale the very sort of small scale intelligence of individual cells into a much larger scale intelligence of organs, tissues, and whole bodies, that kind of knowledge is going to give rise to a, a, a whole area of, of artificial intelligence, not based on trying to emulate brain architectures. So right now, um, a lot of AI is all about trying to emulate uh, the structure of the brain. And I think that leaves a lot on the table in terms of much more ancient general principles of intelligence that were here long before brains actually showed up. So those are all those are all kind of practical applications for you know engineering and environmental and computer science. The, the philosophical slash conceptual um, implications are also uh, many. One thing to think about is the role of the genome in uh, producing a body. So uh, a lot of people think about the, g the genome as the software of the cell, and I think that's somewhere between not true and just incomplete. What the genome actually encodes are the proteins. It doesn't say directly anything about anatomy. What it, what it specifically encodes are proteins. So it basically tells each cell what is the hardware that that cell gets to have. So, this, so the, the genetics are a specification of the hardware. Now, once you have this hardware, what evolution has made sure of is that the hardware is really good. So the hardware is such that it takes advantage of the laws of physics, and especially the laws of electricity, but also, of course, biomechanics and, and diffusion and things like that, and the laws of computation. And it accomplishes some, some really remarkable, really remarkable things. So that's, that gives us the opportunity to intervene in systems at the level of the software. And that's, that's very important. It tells us something profound about what, and when we get to, we can dive into this more if you want, but what what it, what actually is the role of, of the genome in, in determining anatomical plasticity. The other thing that this is telling us is really the kind of broad ability of cells to cooperate in novel environments. And this, this idea that perhaps you can get cells to build all sorts of things, not just the things that they're, you know, fish, fish eggs make fish and frog eggs make frog. But it, it sounds like if we understood what we were doing with these destructive patterns, we could actually get these cells to build whatever we wanted. And so that plasticity, that capacity is still, we're only scratching the surface. And the final thing, which I think is very profound uh, in all of this, is what, what this is telling us about agency and what, are, what, what really are memories, what really are goals. And I've actually, the last six months, I've written a number of papers on this more, more than probably the rest of uh, my career put together on this, this topic of agency and what it means to think about cells and tissues having goals and having memories and having um, purpose and, and, and acting this way. And a lot of people, 
uh, are very uncomfortable with, with that kind of talk with things that aren't humans. And then some, some people think it's okay for higher animals and some people don't think it's okay even to talk that way about, let's say, great apes. And then some people actually don't think we should even be talking about humans that way, you know, it's the whole behaviorist tradition. But the reality is that evolution, we have to take evolution seriously and we have to understand that humans aren't magic. We came, we, we got here by a, a slow, um, process of, of gradual improvement along a, across a very long tree of life. And the capacities that we have are fancy versions of much, you know, uh, simpler kinds of, of information processing and, and computation. And we are all made of parts. So, you know, you, you, you feel as an integrated individual that has goals and, you know, you're a person that has centralized goals that reach out to the future and so on. But actually, we're all bags of cells, right? I mean, really, in between our ears is a is a huge number of individual cells that used to be unicellular organisms long ago, but they've gotten together and they've gotten together to do two big things. They've gotten together to form a body and then to work together to have goals that none of the individual cells themselves have. So they store memories, they have goals and programs of, of behavior that don't belong to any individual cell. So how does that work? What you know, I think I think these synthetic platforms when we make these things from scratch, like Xenobots and, and other types of biobots, are letting us build minds and bodies from scratch in uh, completely novel configurations. And uh, when you do that, you discover some very deep things about both sides of the equation, the mind and the body, and how they interact. I noticed in the in some of the research y'all, y'all were doing around the butterflies and the planaria, through the metamorphosis process for the butterflies and through just kind of the regenerative process for the planaria, it seems like the, the memories get stored and transfer and i'm and i'm curious how does that work how are memories actually encoded if, if they kind of make it through this kind of regenerative process or this kind of metamorphosis process in specifically in the butterflies and planaria but also i mean i would assume if we draw this out like in in humans you mentioned some of your talks that in the future we'll have people who are getting parts of their brain kind of replaced but the memories may still be around like well, can you kind of talk me through that process yeah. Well, how does it work? If I knew how it worked, I would be on the to Stockholm to pick up the Nobel Prize. So I don't know how it works, but I, uh, I can tell you a few things about it. Just to so that people know the phenomenon we're talking about, it appears that memories are very robust to remodeling of their substrate. So if a caterpillar um, learns a particular fact, it then becomes a moth or a butterfly during that process. Their brain gets largely liquefied, completely taken apart, put back together in a new form that's more suitable for a flying in a completely different type of flying body and the memories still remain and in the case of the planarian the flatworm learns a particular thing we then amputate the, the head the tail piece just kind of sits there for a while then it grows back a new brain and when it grows back a new brain it still remembers the original information so in some fashion that information is stored throughout the body and then is imprinted on the new brain so a couple of things to be said about that first of all I, you know, people are, are are very sort of weirded out that information can be stored outside the brain, but actually we don't really understand how information that can be stored in the brain either, right? And there are lots of people who, who study memory, but the the fact is the molecular mechanisms are that are required for memory. That's that's great, and we need to know those. But we are a very long way from asking how things are encoded. So your memory of the Pythagorean theorem, what does that mean that you're able to 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 remember this decades decades later and, and the cells in your brain access some sort of molecular structure and look at it and say oh i know what this is this is about triangles and 
and this is what it you know this is what the size of the triangle and, and kind of decode so that whole that whole issue of encoding decoding is completely unclear how that how any of that works it's important to think about all of the the kind of experiments with brain transplants and and memory transplants and uh, things like this to understand that yeah memories in some fashion can be moved around from tissue to tissue and it's still really not understood what they are, but but we really need to build some of these systems that, well, first of all, I mean, memories in general can exist in non-neural systems to begin with. So there are plants and single cell organisms that learn and so on. All of this is, is an emerging field called basal cognition. And so people like us who work in slime molds and, and so on, think about how learning and memory works in all kinds of all kinds of organisms. And, and I think it will have major implications for biomedicine. I mean, there isn't much data on this yet. But for sure, we're going to have patients with degenerative brain disease who are going to get some sort of stem cell therapy in their brains. And no doubt somebody will finally get that to work. And then there'll be some interesting questions about, well, what happens to uh, those patients? You know, if, if a good chunk of their, of their brain gets replaced by the progeny of stem cells in some regenerative therapy, do they retain their personality, their, their personal identity, their memories? And what does it mean that we have this unified center of gravity, so to speak? I think that's Dan, that's uh, Dan Dennett's uh, term. It seems like we're a unified mind or a unified consciousness. And yet we really are a bag of parts and we can be divided into, you know, your brain, can, the, the hemispheres can be divided into pieces and they can, and, and new things can be added on and so on. And this, this really gets to very profound issues of what is personal identity? What is memory? What does it mean to be? a unified cognitive agent that's fundamentally made of other parts. Yeah, Ooh, gets my my head spinning thinking about it. And I think it, it definitely may make some people uncomfortable thinking about the implications of of our brains or consciousness not necessarily being tied to or our consciousness not necessarily being tied to the brain. I mean, I mean, look, conscious, you know, I didn't say too much about consciousness per se. Consciousness is a tough problem. It's it's easy to talk about behavior or even cognition saying anything profound about about real consciousness as opposed to sort of correlates of consciousness is, is very hard. And I don't spend a lot of time talking about consciousness per se, but a lot of these things make people uncomfortable as well they should because discomfort is a sign of cognitive dissonance. It means that we are learning things that don't fit our preconceived categories. And that's very important because that's the only way you improve going into the future. And one thing that I've learned that's maybe one of the most valuable things about these, um, these Xenobots and things like them is how clearly they indicate to us that all of our categories, simple things like words like animal, body, organism, machine, living, all of these things that we sort of thought we knew what they were, we really don't. And in having arguments with people about whether these things are organisms, whether they're machines, whether you, you know, all, all these kinds of things. Basically, you find out very quickly that the problem is that we don't have a decent definition for any of this stuff. So I think, I think people are right to be uncomfortable because it's a sign that technology has gotten us to a point where now problems that used to be a province of pure philosophy can now be addressed at the bench. I mean, that's not to say that you can do away with philosophy. I think philosophy is very important. But things that used to be pure philosophy, like you know those those, those old experiments that you would uh, talk about in philosophy 101, like philosophy of mind or something, where well, what if I take a you know a hemisphere out of a person and I put it in a brand new body, and what now do you have two people and that? Kind of, 
all of that stuff is actually possible. Okay, Bi bioengineering and, and biotechnology says that th those are not crazy, uh, you know, kind of uh, things that are never going to happen. They're actually real experiments that we can do in, in model systems. And we need to have a philosophy and a conceptual a framework that can that can handle them. And the same thing for our ethics and our you know, this is where this is where you get to really important questions of bioethics because we really need to start to develop a more mature understanding of what we owe to various kinds of creatures, not just the standard animals that you see around us, but this incredible zoo that I think most most people aren't even envisioning yet that we are all going to be surrounded by that are every every combination of unusual body that's partially evolved, partially designed, partially biological, partially technological, or various types of intellectual sophistication from extremely simple things to actually fairly um, complex ones. You know, so there's no there's no turning back from this. We are going to be surrounded by all sorts of novel bodies and novel minds. And we need to get our uh, house in order as far as the philosophy of mind and the ethics of it to understand what we owe to a lot of these creatures that we're going to be creating. If I may, I'm curious, what is it like to be working on on something within an academic environment where you're essentially challenging the status quo? And there are probably lots of people who, as we mentioned, are not necessarily comfortable with some of it or like these these challenges. How do you think about that, like your relationship in the academic environment? Because I know there's, according to folks like Eric Weinstein and the phys in physics departments, people not challenging string theory. It's just kind of people are operating on what they've been operating on for a while. But you are taking a very novel approach to something that can fundamentally change how we view biology in our, in our own evolution. Yeah. Well, I think the first thing to say is that as academics, we have it very easy in the grand scheme of things. Okay. So I think, so I think as much as we can complain about how hard it is to be on a minority view in an academic environment, I think we have to uh, acknowledge that in the grand scope of human experience, we've got it pretty easy. You know, none, none of us, no, no matter what everybody thinks of, of your latest idea in the academic world, it, you know, no, nobody's actually going to hang you for it. I think academic research is is the best job in the world. You get to think about interesting things and talk to you know really brilliant people. And and if and if some of them think you're completely wrong, that's great. That's an opportunity to learn and to improve your ideas. All you know. So so I, I think we shouldn't complain too much. Having having said all of that, the reality is that yeah, I I've sort of been involved in a bunch of things that were counter paradigm. So. For the last 25 years or so of my career, I drove a theory of left-right asymmetry in, in terms of where the laterality of your body comes from that was completely opposite to what was in the textbooks and, and what was kind of the mainstream accepted thing. Our work in bioelectricity, so we developed the first molecular tools to be able to listen in on and, and, and write the electrical information in tissues. I mean, obviously, a lot of people have been talking about bioelectricity for years. We developed the first molecular tools to, to really work on this. That was and still is considered a very unusual thing to work on. Most people are, are into genetics, biochemistry, and now biomechanics more, but that, that is really a, considered an unusual area. And then the latest thing is this merger of cognitive science concepts into developmental biology. I, I dare say that I think most of my colleagues would think this is, at least in the biology field, would think that this is a total mistake. You know, I, how do I feel about it? I, I think a couple of things. I think that, first of all, life is short. It requires a lot of effort. And I, for one, would like to be working on something that I think is important and potentially impactful. So I would rather be wrong with a really interesting idea 
than to be working on something that's you know boring and controversial and you know sort of you know, filling in tiny pieces to an edifice that's already there. So so I, I like uh, being on the edge of things. I like putting out ideas that other people either uh, hadn't thought of or hadn't uh, thought of as good ideas and trying to see what we can make out of them both conceptually and in the lab. I try to um, tell my students that if you get criticized, I say that this is good. It's not personal. Nobody has anything against you specifically. This is either, it's on you to either come up with a better way to explain it, to convince people, or to learn from the experience and adjust your theory and get it to the point where it is so compelling and so empirically useful that nobody in their right mind could ignore it. And, and for us, that means having it be very conceptually clean and also tying it to lab work so that you have actual experiments that it drove. It's not just philosophical um, discussions. It, it really drove new work and, and it just, it speaks for itself in the value of the ideas. And so, so I, I enjoy that whole process. You know, I enjoy kicking ideas around with people who don't come from the same perspective. You mentioned that you love talking with, with younger graduate students because their minds are still moldable and formidable. I'm curious, kind of, you mentioned a kind of couple of things you encourage your graduate students to do. But if we have, if we have listeners who are kind of excited about your work, excited about pursuing research, maybe not in the, the biology field, but just in general, what advice would you have for them on how they should approach research? And two, what are some of the big and exciting questions that you have that you would love to see other people working on? The advice I have, I think if I had to boil it down, kind of the, more, the most general advice that I give to my students is, is the following, at, at, least, at least for the ones that are interested in, in going in very novel directions. I think that one of the things that happens is that people in this field who are successful tend to, tend to give advice to junior people, as, as they should. But oftentimes, the, the folks who are very successful in something or were pioneers in one area are often not very well calibrated on other areas. So when I tell what I tell my students is, is look, if if somebody is giving you a critique of a particular experiment, something very specific, you should be all ears. Take take it in completely. Learn everything you can from it. Get polish your your work till it's better, so that you you know you make it completely convincing. Listen, listen to every everything that anybody who's who's experienced has to say about the specific thing that you're trying to um, show with your experiment. However, when people give you overall advice about what you should or shouldn't be researching or ways in which you should or shouldn't be thinking about this problem or, you know, general career advice, I generally tell people you shouldn't be listening to any of that from anybody. Because oftentimes that kind of advice is, you know, even even not always, but mostly it's very well-intentioned. Oftentimes these people are just not well calibrated on your particular thing. So so your job as a, as a junior scientist is to hone your intuition, first of all, to know, know what you're talking about, to really do your homework and, and know the field and know exactly what's been done before and why it, it has or hasn't worked, and to read widely and understand the broader context of things, and then develop your own path. And no one is really going to be able to tell you what is and isn't worth doing because people, people don't know, especially about frontier things. No, no one has a crystal ball. We have no idea. Being discouraged because somebody who's, you know, who's a, who's a famous name says, oh my God, that's never going to work. Don't do that. If you do this, it's, you know, it's career suicide, you know, that, that kind of stuff. I have heard that my entire life. And frankly, all of the interesting things that, that we've done at one point or another, people said, absolutely don't do this. And so I think that, it, you know, it, it's on each one of us to have the responsibility to 
sort of sharpen your own intuition about what is and is not worth spending your your blood, sweat, and tears on, because I don't think anybody else is going to be able to tell you what to do in a way that makes your own life feel worthwhile at the end. Yeah. And then and then the second part is kind of what are what are some of the big exciting questions? Let's call it like maybe two or three that, that you would love to see people go work on researching. Yeah. So I think so I think some of the bigger directions that are really important are I, I, I would love to see more what we call modeling that is constructivist, meaning if you make a model of something, it has to not only have the pieces that are necessary for it to happen, but you should try to figure out the algorithm that is actually sufficient for it to happen. So, so you want, you know, so nowadays when you pick up a nice paper in cell or something like this, you know, figure seven is always a model, but, but it's, but it's usually some sort of arrow model. And, and then if you, if you are a computer scientist and you say, okay, this looks pretty cool. I'm going to make a robot that does this. Let's take a look at this algorithm and see if I can implement it. You've got no hope because the model is usually not a constructive model. It's a, it's a, it's kind of a list of things that you need and kind of how they might affect each other, but it's nowhere near specified enough to uh, make an actual simulated version. So I think, and this is this is obviously this is very hard, which is why it, it's not um, all over the place. But I would love to see in the coming decades more of a of a link between biology and robotics and engineering and computer science so that these things that we figure out are more easily ported to those fields. So if you're a biologist and you crack an important problem, what I would love to see beyond the biology paper talking to biologists about, hey, this is uh, you know protein uh, you know number 72 that does this and that, what I would love to do to, to have more of is a, a companion paper for the engineering sciences it's say, look, never, never mind all those irrelevant details. Here's the basic principle, and here's why it's cool, and here's what you, how you would use it, and here's what how you could implement the same thing in a completely different media. And so, you know, we try to do some of that, and we try to write reviews that are simultaneously for engineers and for biologists and computer scientists to abstract away from some of the unnecessary details and get the principles. And I think I'm really excited about those kind of efforts. I'm also really excited about this thing called the robot scientist field, which is this idea that we need a lot of help. I mean, the, the number of, I forget the exact statistics, but the, the doubling of the number of papers is, is astronomical. We were, we're bombarded with uh, massive amounts of new data. And, and I don't, I don't just mean like deep data sets, like profiling data sets. I mean, actual just papers with, you know, functional results, right? We did this and then this happened. Already, I would say that information is way beyond the ability of a single human to sort of hold it all in your head and, and use, use it to come up with, with great things. So. We need we need artificial intelligence help. We need machine learning help to not not just with the number crunching, but to actually help us with the most creative part of the scientific enterprise, which is hypothesis generation. And and there have been some interesting advances in this in this field. We we had one I think in 2014. We we had a model of uh, planarian regeneration that was the first model in this field that didn't come from a human scientist. We had a yeah a machine learning instance that was like a, a thing to generate hypotheses and test them against papers that existed in the literature. And it not only came up with a really neat model of of planarian regeneration, but it was able to predict using that model predict a bunch of results that hadn't been done yet and predict new experiments. So that was just you know just just baby stuff, but. But but this 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 idea of developing tools to help us think and to help manage the information, not just data structure, but to actually extract knowledge and then to extract wisdom from that is the future. And we, we have to work we have to work really hard to to make this because otherwise the data efforts are going to just outstrip our ability to, to make use of all of this stuff. Last question for you. 
outside of the the field of biology and the work you're doing, what excites you the most about the future? I think what excites me the most is the incipient opportunity to to get answers to questions that were thought to be pure philosophy and beyond us. I think we're getting close to the point where we are going to be able to get real insight on what it means to be a unified mind. You know, that's that's something that Plato and and, and people found probably thousands of years before him honored this, but they really had no ability to, they couldn't hope for an actual answer to this question. And they think that there's a consilience of technologies that are coming down the line having to do with, with bioengineering and, and, and various other, other disciplines that I think are going to get us to answers to questions that previously were just the most profound questions of, of existence and that, that we had no hope of actually getting answers to. How can people support you and your research? Well, if you have questions or ideas or you want to talk, you can find me at drmike11.org. That's our website. That's the lab website, drmike11.org, one word. You can find me on Twitter at at drmike11. And of course, if you are a potential funder or a potential investor, uh, we can always use more partners to actually help us do some of this work, which is very expensive. The, 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 re the research is quite expensive. So we're happy to meet anybody who wants to uh, physically support the work. And would that support also include perhaps long-term potential commercialization of some of the research you guys are doing? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so we have some relationships with industry. We're looking for more. There's a ton of this technology that is, is commercially valuable and can be spun out for applications. So yeah, anybody that's interested in getting in very early into these things can get in touch with us. There's, I think there's massive potential for creating new markets of opportunity, not just exploiting the existing ones. If you want to learn more about the research Dr. Levin and his team are working on, you can head on over to drmichaellevin.org. And then if you want to follow along with Dr. Levin, you can find him on Twitter at drmichaellevin. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Build the Future podcast. Lastly, if you're building and want to get support, want to hear about certain topics or from certain people, or just want to get involved in helping build the future, shoot us over an email at hello at buildthefuturepodcast.com or follow me, Cameron, on Twitter at Cam Weesey, and we'll see what we can make happen. That's it from us. Until next time, go build.